Hello, Merry Christmas. Welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm Alice Denby, editor of CapEx. And we're here in CapEx Towers in Westminster. We've got our Christmas jumpers on. We've got a glass of wine in our hands. The government is just about still standing, but no one wants to talk about current affairs in the run up to Christmas. Instead, we're going to look back on our politicians and policies of the year. To do this, I'm joined by a superb panel of friends of CapEx. We have William Atkinson, assistant editor at Conservative Home. We have a US opinion editor at The Telegraph, Poppy Coburn. And Deputy Editor of CapEx, Joseph Dinage. Welcome, everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Going to start by talking about our heroes of the year. Okay, I'm going to start with a really controversial hero, but probably the most iconic political figure that's come out this year. And unfortunately, we're going to have to go beyond the British Isles. We're going to have to go all the way to South America. And I'm going to say his name wrong. And I'm probably (laughs) going to pronounce it differently every time. So that would be exciting. Javier Malai. Malay? Malay? Whichever one you want. The guy with the chainsaw. Yes. That's really why you actually remember him. It's and the guy hair. with the... I mean, really, where do you start with him? <laughs> I think he is the most interesting politician that I can think of. And this is even in South American politics, and there are quite a few contenders for maddest South American politician. What I found so fascinating about him is that he seems to have proven that you can actually do the mad things you say you want to do if you have the willpower behind it. Now, obviously, he's just come into government, which is pretty shocking for people here in the UK. They thought, how could you possibly get a tantric sex coach who (laughs) walks around with a massive chainsaw saying he's going to cut back on regulation, as you said, has the amazing hair, I think was in a Rolling Stones tribute band as well. Like everything you read about him, there's another like amazing little anecdote that they'll just kind of put into the copy. But he actually is a libertarian hero and that he's seen the problems that Argentina has. And Argentina, by all respects, should be a very successful country and, and, and was but it's been held back by this horrendous Piranha's economic scheme for a very long time. A lot of what we would now describe as kind of post-liberalism, this this is a new thing. It's pretty indistinguishable from the Piranha's economic programme, which is open borders, heavy state subsidies, also wrapped up in some kind of patriotism, the idea of like returning to the lands, bogus nationalism. This policy has not been very successful in Argentina. They have runaway inflation. All of the young talent leave the country as quickly as they possibly can. When the problems of the country are that severe, you need someone who's not just a reformer, you need essentially a revolutionary. Mm. So it's very easy to laugh at him. But I do actually think we should watch what he's going to do with the country with great interest. And I'm not going to say that Britain is in an Argentina state, but come back to us in 20 years, maybe we might be, or at least moving in that direction. I think there's something to be said, somebody who is not held back by convention, somebody who's not actually willing as well to build consensus with people, mm. he knows, do not have the best interests of the country at heart who's actually willing to try something completely new. So yeah, he is my hero of the year. Amazing hair, very funny. I wish him all the best. Doesn't he have a dog called Milton Friedman or something? Yeah, I'm married, yeah. but I think he has about five. I also think it will be, for people like us here in the sort of free market think tank, it'll be a very interesting kind of real-time experiment right. in what happens when our policies are put into action or the sort of policies that we advocate for. So I think a very worthy hero. Thank well, you. That's just awesome. It's the greatest South American success for the CPS. It's in general picture. Thanks, Will. Who's your hero? Uh, my hero is somebody much less controversial. It's Henry Kissinger. Um, who um, at the time of recording died but a few weeks ago and I was very privileged to get to write the um, obituary to him for Con Home 
And I just met being, having been something of a, a Kissinger fanboy growing up, I actually had a picture of him on my wall, which I had to take down at age 17 because <laughs> my first girlfriend rather disapproved of kissing in front of Kissinger. Hmm. Uh, Amazing you had a girlfriend, frankly. Thank you, <laughs> we'll, we'll skirt over that matter. Yeah. The view is kind of, I'll have to see my luscious moustache <laughs> due to the lack of video. Um, what struck me about Henry Kissinger is the fact that unlike the vast majority of politicians that I've had the pleasure to encounter at my Silicon home, he had a deep understanding of history. Not only because he'd worked as an academic, but because he had lived through it. You know, he grew up, you know, in funny enough, Weimar Germany during the heights of the hyperinflation crisis. He was a, a young Jewish boy that got attacked by Nazis in his hometown of um, Firth. And twelve members of his family. You now, actually, I think it's more than twelve. So it was, I think, at least thirteen close members of his family died in the camps. And people often wonder why he had such a pessimistic view of human nature. I think that's not overly difficult to discern when one sort of realizes that fact about him. But he was truly a sort of totemic political figure. You know, he was essentially at the core of America's foreign policy thinking at the height of not only the Cold War, but perhaps the height of America's position as an imperial power. You know, and you can say for whatever side you are on his record for every opening with China, there's the coup in Chile. He was a person who genuinely sort of had an understanding of the world, had an understanding of history of how politicians could apply history and act and shape its course and did so. And I think with the passing of him, there's a generation of genuine political titans who are very much passing into the history books. As somebody who has still on a daily basis, alas, that only makes our current crop of politicians look even smaller. That's a very depressing <laughs> note in which to sort of think about one's hero of the year. But in Kissinger's passing, I think we've lost him, quite frankly, at the moment to which the Mets needed him the most. I think worth mentioning to listeners as well that he gave a keynote speak at a CPS Margaret Thatcher conference a couple of years ago, and you can read what he said on CapEx. And there was very prescient warnings about Russia, about China, and about the current situation in, in the Middle East. He really did kind of foresee it all. A shame he's not around to help hinder. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, Joe, who was your hero of the year? So my hero of this year is also going to be awarded posthumously controversially, potentially, as we are in the Centre for Policy Studies. My hero is a Labour man, it's Alistair Darling, who died a couple of days after Kissinger. I think it might have been the same day, because you remember Shane McGowan died as well. I mean, yeah. He died at the end of the week. Yeah, I remember yeah. texting my editor, yeah. you know, saying, blimey, they're dropping like flies. You know, it's it was... like Princess Diana and Mother Teresa. Oh, or was it C.S. <laughs> Eliot and Douglas Huxley all died at the same yeah. day in 63? John Lennon, Thomas Jameson. Anyway, sorry, it's there. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> the long tradition. The series <laughs> of very morbid weeks, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> um, but so he was Brown's Chancellor from 2007-2010, which was as we all know, extraordinarily turbulent time for British economics with the financial crisis of 2008. And although I never got to meet Alistair Darling, we've all read incredibly widely about some of the traits that he brought to politics, that he brought to leadership, was famed for his very steady hand in the time of crisis. He was also known for his quite quick wit, his intelligence, and was also, just generally speaking, quite a self-effacing guy. All three of these things, I think, are, again, to finish on a slightly <laughs> depressing note, rather lacking in today's palpably panic-stricken Conservative Party. Those three qualities, I think, are integral to good leadership, is something that I think the front bench particularly could learn from. I remember hearing him speak a few years ago and saying that he was told he had something like two hours before the banks just ran out of money yeah. and that he had to act incredibly quickly in that crisis, rather reminiscent perhaps of Liz Truss's mini budget. Perhaps. Very good heroes. Thank you, everyone. Shall we do villains next, Poppy? 
I'm sorry to give him so much credit, but I think it has to be Jonathan Porters. <laughs> and I think the reason it has to be Jonathan Porters <laughs> is because I've never seen a man lose his, whatever credibility he had so quickly as the discussion around immigration has changed. I think for the better, you know, it's actually moved now into the realm of reality rather mm. than fantasy. Jonathan Porters has made a name for himself in attacking those who are somewhat sceptical of Britain's mass migration strategy as being totally uneconomic lunatics who are arguing purely from the basis of some kind of nativism. And he will basically take the argument, which is a convenient one for him, that there is perhaps a cultural argument against mass immigration, but it's an unalloyed economic good. And this is something we can all agree on. So, you know, kind of get over it. It's not that important. We have to be sensible. We have to be pragmatic for the country. Immigration is good. Well, that's clearly not true. And I think this is now an argument that has moved beyond the realms of the right fringe of the Conservative Party and you know, certain old-fashioned socialist realm of the Labour Party into the mainstream, which is we've now seen that as Britain's productivity issues are becoming much more difficult, as we have opened up the legal migration routes more, we have not seen the economic benefits that we were promised, quite the opposite. We've kind of got ourselves in a bit of a Ponzi scheme here. He's a perfect villain because he started to lose credibility. So they're somewhat optimistic. We can move beyond venerating those who we love who are also dead and say that some of the people who have so long held so much sway over public discourse are now starting to kind of lose ground. I'm quite excited about these developments. But if I had to pick another person, it'd be Sue Gray. Keep an eye on Sue Gray. I feel like absolutely. she's... Absolutely. Yeah, she's absolutely one to watch, right. I, I reckon. I think she's done a lot of damage to the reputation of the civil service, being oh. impartial and... Something about her is just not... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Shades of grey. <laughs> I suppose we should make, perhaps declare an interest in Jonathan Porter's here at the Centre of Policy Studies because he took issue with a statistic that we floated about... That's so out of character. <laughs> about legal migration figures on which we were later vindicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Well done to the Centre for Policy Studies. Well, William, villain of the year. Well, I think it's quite interesting that Poppy brings up Sue Gray because one of the many sort of depressing aspects of British politics is that you hope there's some sort of shadowy mastermind who's actually behind everything. And then you sort of scratch the surface and you discover it is, in fact, quite a bland, boring civil (laughs) servant who the only sort of highlights of her life really was, I think, running a pub in Northern Ireland for a year. And even that, people can't actually agree on whether she was working as a spy or not. But we'll leave that aside. But funny enough, in the efforts to create this sort of shadowy figure who is behind the various organisations of the Conservative Party, Nadine Doris has recently alighted on um, somebody called Dr. No, who is going to be my villain of the year. Because not only am I a great fan of Ian Fleming and the James Bond books and films, so I'm happy to get plugged in for them, but the fact that... Doris has alighted on Dr. Now in her recent assault on Fleming's legacy in her recent book, The Plot, which basically suggests that this shadowy figure, who she can't quite name, but we know um, attended various sex parties, is apparently close to Michael Gove, has apparently sort of toppled several conservative leaders, probably, I imagine, working just as we speak to um, topple where she's going as well, is the person who sort of forced out Boris Johnson, you know, her great hero. But I think the fact that Nadine has chosen to blame the various problems the Conservative Party has endured in the last few years on Dr. No highlights what I'd like to call the conspiratorial style in conservative politics, which is, you know, a reference to the traditional style in American politics, I think was the same, which is a book that came out in 64, I think the year after the Kennedy assassination. It shows me at the Conservative Party for which, God knows why, I have great fondness and have invested large chunks of my life into researching and writing about, has descended really into this sort of fantasy world of blaming conspiracies, of thinking that actually it wasn't their own fault, being unable to deliver the agenda in which they were elected in 2019, or earlier, their inability to make the country in any way many more conservative since 2019. 
they blame it instead on these sort of shadowy figures. I frankly had enough of that. And I think, you know, we live in a time where if you are, as I am, a sort of young right-wing hack, there's more opportunity to appear and write and on different channels or for different podcasts, for different organizations than ever before. Um, but I do think necessarily the sort of sum taste of all of this has allowed the Conservative Party to think more rationally about how you can actually make the Conservative Party more effective as a political union or how you can make Britain as a whole more conservative. Instead, we've devolved into this state of just blaming people who don't probably actually exist um, for killing bunnies and opposing Boris Johnson. And I think if the Conservative Party is in this stage, just ahead of a general election, wherever it comes, um, or sorry, I should say, whenever it comes next year, that's a very sort of unfortunate place to be. And I'm sorry for my first two candidates for here at Villa me. Yeah, I, mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the Conservative Party's problem isn't some shadowy figure. It's itself. It's the, its own MPs. They can't get along, that they can't stop fighting and that they can't get it together. I'm hearing a lot of movement talk here in the room. I didn't realise I was surrounded by the dark shadow people. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like pulling my bag slightly closer to it. Yeah, we've actually got Michael Gove standing over us telling us what we can say at least at points. This yeah. is the Centre Policy Studies. <laughs> Joe, who is your villain of the year? There was a lot of hot competition for this year's baddies, but I think one man in particular takes a biscuit, a chap called Dr Javed Khan. On the surface of things, admirable man was the CEO of a very large children's charity for a long time and also an avid public health campaigner. Last year, he was commissioned to write a paper into policies that the government could enact to ensure that we get to a smoke-free Britain by 2030, a pledge, I believe, made under Theresa May's government. In his paper, which has proven to be quite an influence on public health strategy, among various other completely absurd prohibitionist policies, such as painting cigarettes green. He also included the generational smoking ban, which, of course, we all scoffed at. But now, a Conservative Party has committed itself. Yeah. It's so only policy. Yeah. It does seem to be their only policy. And, and of course, like, we could wax poetic for hours about how liberal it is, how utterly impractical it is, how it's sort of just going to be another series, another one in, in a series of failed attempts at prohibition. But I think that it's also symptomatic of a tremendous lack of imagination, mm. lack of political imagination in the Conservative Party, that this, as you said, has almost become their flagship policy. It just depressing in the extreme speaks to a very unfortunate turn that the party has taken. Incredibly interventionist. Well, and also on, on that, it's, it's yeah. modelled on something that was introduced in New Zealand, isn't it? Which the now the incoming... Which they now scrap. Yes, yeah. they now yeah. scrap. Yeah. So it's failed everywhere it's yeah. been tried. Yeah, it, well, he's failed everywhere it's been tried, as with every pro, you know, attempt at prohibition. Does anyone else really want to cigarette now? Am I, am I the only smoker? Oh, I'm always gay. Joe's a very dedicated smoker. Uh, a true patriot. <laughs> I think so. I think so, yeah, and I'm doing my bit. But yeah, Javid Khan is my villain. Yeah, I think we can all agree. For inspiring that terrible policy. Should we do politician of the year? Mm-hmm. Well, I had to pick Kemi Babnock, but I look at the Conservative Party now. If we are entering a period of opposition, who will take up the mantle and who will take the fight to the Labour Party in the future? Because really, I think people have started to mentally prepare for that period mm. of opposition. And I think the best politician to lead that movement would be Kemi. I think Kemi's proven herself to be able to build alliances across the party in a way that a slightly more divisive figure like Suella Braverman has been capable of. She's someone who's very popular amongst the membership. I think, in fact, from a Conservative home poll, where everybody seems to be about 20 points <laughs> minus. <laughs> Kerry Badnock is one of the few people who's actually you know, popular. Of course, she's someone who is implicated in the movement, according to Jean Doris. So 
But I think she's proven herself to be, despite a relative newcomer to the party, a relative newcomer to fight frontline politics, someone who displays a remarkable degree of maturity, who surrounded herself with people who are intellectually rigorous. She really is the only person I can point to and say, this is someone who can actually lead the party through quite a turbulent period. She would be my hands down best politician at the moment. She's someone who shows the spirit of what the Conservative Party could be in the future. Other future Conservative leaders are available, Capex, is mm-hmm. careful to note. William, who is your politician of the year? Well, you know, Bobby's been looking towards Conservative Party's future, and as is my one time looking towards his past. My politician of the year is Michael Gove, because we are speaking. Wait, so, are you Dr. No? You know, Dr. No is sort of staring at me right now. <laughs> uh, listeners, I think, of um, just making sure that I sort of cross out the lines that I've just been handed. Uh, no, my politician of the year is Michael Gove, because we are speaking only a week or so after the PISA results came out, which showed that Britain has had its best ever performance for maths. And at the moment also, we have the best results for literacy amongst children at primary school of any country in the Western world. And I know, you know focusing solely on Michael Gove is to the detriment of Alice's very close friend, Nick Gibb. But nevertheless, I think Michael Gove's achievements in government in those four years in the English education secretary have been by far the most transformative thing the Conservative Party has managed, except to perhaps, you know, losing all control over our borders, but that's a separate matter. There are hundreds and thousands of children who are now attending schools which are rated good or outstanding by Ofsted, who would not have done had there still been a Labour government after 2010. There are hundreds of thousands of children out there who are literate and numerate because of the efforts of Michael Gove, Nick Gibb, and their reforms in the and parts of education. You know, I think when the Conservative Party came to power, 68% of schools rated good or outstanding. By offset now, I think it's 86%, or it was at least by about 2017, 2018, which I think was the last time I might check the figures. It's remarkable because what Michael Gove did was education was actually applying basic Conservative principles, mm-hmm. giving more control to head teachers and teachers to run their own affairs, and actually getting the Department of Education and local authorities out of the way, and actually enforcing things like you know, traditional standards, the teaching of phonics, you know, a knowledge-based curriculum. And it proved actually that conservative politics can actually work and can be effective in practice. And it also proved that a conservative minister who knows what they want to do and can understand how the Whitehall machine works can actually deliver conservative mm-hmm. policies despite the resistance of the blob. If we're interested... If we are heading for a period of opposition, Central Home obviously has no line on this. But if the Conservative Party is heading for a period of opposition, to study what Gove achieved in those four years, which he was shuffled off the whips office, is going to be essential for understanding what we can actually do. And even now, you know, he is railing against nutrient neutrality rules. He is sitting there at his desk in the Department of Leveling Up Communities, whatever it else is this week generating AI models of what Cambridge could look like in 20 years' time. <laughs> and surely this is the most productive and effective use of a government minister's time. You know. I think it's also worth mentioning, we were talking about sort of qualities that are sadly missing in our politics. And, and Nick Gibbs staying in the same job for so long and just plugging away at rolling out phonics, I think is an inspirational story. I mean, in a time when the Department of Education has had, what, how many ministers and... In how many years? That I kind of churn and change really doesn't help. Since September 2021, we've had as many Conservative education ministers as Labour managed in 13 years of government. Um, this, of course, includes uh, Michelle Donnellan, who was there for about a day yes. um, and then resigned. She really did Boris um, but she still has her picture up, a bit like Liz Truss sending up her remembrance services. Uh, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> like an ex-minister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, William likes to make fun of me about Nick Gibb, but it's because my daughter is learning phonics at the moment. So I can really see firsthand the good that it's doing mm. and what an instinctive way of learning to read it is. And I'm not actually sure I've got that much to add, really. I'm going to be very boring. 
and I'm going to create a hybrid politician because William's right. We need to look to the past, what's worked, the real kind of establishments of the Conservative Party, but to the future as well. And, in all, and if the Tories are going to spend a stint in opposition, it has to be a very effective incubator for ideas. And personally, the only person I can see really leading that charge is Kemi. So perhaps a sort of Kemi. Goes. That's not a CapEx endorsement, CapEx. No. Let's not have a dog in this way. <laughs> no, indeed. Uh, she's coming out very well, though. <laughs> yeah, she is. Yeah. She, you know, <laughs> listeners can make their own judgments. <laughs> Shall we do policy of the year? Now, on this one, CapEx very much, I think, does yeah. have a dog in the fight. We were strong advocates of permanent full expensing, multiple articles about this on CapEx throughout the year. So we were very pleased when Jeremy mm. Hunt made that a thing. I think it's the biggest investment or the biggest business tax cut there's ever been. Very pleased with that, but I'm happy to hear from other panellists on what their inferior policy of the year is. <laughs> My policy of the year, I suppose it's not so much a, a new policy as a climb down from a bad one, mm. but this is still very much inspired by what CPS has been doing, and particularly the work of Carl Williams on his kind of energy policy papers. This is the climb down from some of the harder edges of the net zero policies. And the reason why I think this is so important is because it was an instance of Rishi Sunak actually showing sensible leadership. He's often kind of vaunted as this uh, pragmatic, you know, he's not so partisan, he's coming in here, he's cleaning up the messes left by previous administrations. Okay, it's very good to say that in terms of his temperament, but he does actually have to back that in terms mm-hmm. of policy. He has to make tough decisions in terms of policy. And I think this was something that he did, which was very laudable. It was very difficult. He got a lot of flack for it. He got a lot of flack from it from people I would say are perhaps not entirely acting in the best interest. I mean, Professor Piers Falster, who said after this climb down occurred, that the UK's position as a global leader on the climate is now under scrutiny. I mean, this is the perfect way of describing how a lot of the kind of net zero boosters describe things. It's all vibes based. Mm. The idea that it actually matters at all, that anyone's paying attention to Britain's global leadership. We were one of the early adopters to renewable technologies in the 2000s, 2010s. All this is allowed to do is essentially kneecap to one of the manufacturing industry we still have left ensured that we have very, very high energy costs, really, really high electricity costs. It's good to see a Conservative Prime Minister who is not afraid to stand up to the Climate Change Committee. And it's one of the few ways that the current Conservative administration has actually shown that it does have a bit of backbone. I think you've made a compelling case there that sometimes a U-turn can actually be a brave thing to do. I mean, how do you rate scrapping HS2? I feel like in the sort of circles, the kind of boosterish circles that CapEx likes to appeal to, there are kind of two ways to look at it. Like, Mm. is it just admitting that Britain can't build anything, that we can't have nice things? Or is it, in fact, a brave thing to do? It was a waste of money. Well, I know that one of my fellow panellists here has got plenty of things to say about this. There's something slightly worrying, isn't there, after 13 years of Conservative government, that the best kind of policies you can think of are undoing previous disastrous policy. I mean, this, you know, obviously net zero, is this is a Theresa May policy. This is something that's rammed through a dying parliament in the same way the Labour Party rammed through the Equality Act in 2010. But cleaning up one's own messes is still good. Mm. You know, you shouldn't see yourself as wedded to bad policies just because they've been done under your own party. It's slightly concerning to me that this is all they seem to be capable of doing. I mean, when I was racking my brain for other good policies that have happened this year, the one I immediately thought of is the pan of the bully excels. It's interesting to see how these things grow from momentum. You know, I mean, it's, it's something very like British about this. A few kind of hobbyists would go after something that they know is wrong. They would do the meticulous data crunching. Mm. It would be picked up by journalists. You know, journalists are read by ministers. And then, you know, two months later, it's policy. 
if only we could do that for bigger issues mm. than just banning clearly mental dogs, <laughs> then I think, you know, the country's completely fixed. I think Duncan Robinson did his economist column. It's the posting to policy pipeline. Thank you. What is your policy of the year? Well, it's quite funny since when um, Bobby suggested that the Conservative Party shouldn't be wedded to do bad policies simply for the fact that their party has introduced them. For some reason, the immediate West Rwanda bill <laughs> in my uh, mind. But I mean, that's probably a separate matter. Actually, um, my policy of the year was um, one that you've touched upon for very similar reasons as obvious Gallery, which is uh, scrapping HST. And I am a product of the home counties. I am Hertfordshire's and Metroland's strongest soldier. And so this is very difficult for me because you know, my father was from Wendover. HST was torn up, all that lovely, beautiful sort of Roldale country in order to essentially allow people to get out of Birmingham 10 minutes faster. On the other hand, HS2, as expensive as it might have been, was a sign that Britain could actually do things, that we could actually build stuff. And Rishi Sunak's decision in his party conference speech, and of course, I think we kind of knew that it was going to happen for about two weeks beforehand, so it was a bit dumb for number 10 not to actually just come out and say it. Rishi Sunak's decision to go to Manchester and say, I'm cancelling a train that's going to stop in Manchester, was at least a sign, I think, of Rishi's great strength as Prime Minister, which is popular such one, which is his ability to think like an economist and to see trade-offs and to be honest about them, which was something that he did during the pandemic. It's something he signed over at zero. And it's something he's done over HST. Now, it was always obvious, and it has been obvious, I think, since the stories came to power, that HST is a humongous white elephant. It's basically currently predicted to cost at least three times the 33 billion originally predicted. And there is some evidence that essentially people running the project were essentially lying to ministers over how much it would cost. The fact that for some reason in Britain, it costs 10 times as much as it would in France to build the same sort of length of track. The fact that we have evidence by, I think it's British Remain shows that we have the most expensive railways per kilometer of track of anywhere in the Western world. Something is clearly going wrong. We would all like to live in an Anglo-Futurist utopia where, you know, we have great nuclear power stations across the land and high-speed rail taking us everywhere we'd like to go. But we will never be able to achieve that if we can't actually deliver any projects on time and on budget. And as much as I may cavail against HS2, as much as my inner scrutonium thinks that's tearing up that beautiful English countryside, which I love so very, very much, the fact that we can't even build this bloody useless railway suggests <laughs> that we really are a country whose state capacity has withered and for whom the sort of sites of its ministers have entirely dimmed. And so as writers, Rishi may have been to sort of say, this is ludicrous, we should cancel it and spend money elsewhere. The fact that we've got that far with building it and still actually not get anywhere near to actually finishing it is itself a very depressing prospect. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm sorry to once again be the voice of hope and optimism. I do find the inability to build HS2 depressing. I can accept that there may well be good economic arguments against putting good money after bad, but it just feels like giving up. It just well, feels there's, totally no, there's no lessons learned. Yeah. It's just yeah. actually the real problem. Yeah. I think people would have less of a problem with the cancellation of HS2 if they were like, the reason why HS2 <coughs> was such a disaster in the end is it's not necessarily because you've you know, torn yeah. up a few fields. because we nowhere. need to scrap the planning. It, well, well, not just the planning act. It's also like the way that we subcontract things in this country is corrupt and disastrous. Mm. I mean, if there were a real public, I mean, there will be a public inquiry, no doubt. It would be totally useless and you'll have like groups standing up and being mm. like, you killed my newts in my pond. You, you owe me money for this. But if there was a serious public inquiry, what it would centre around is why is it the case that we seem to be incapable of actually getting private contractors to work well with the government anymore? Mm. We seem to be giving money away hand over foot to projects that are very inefficient. And there's something to me that kind of reeks of corruption. Mm. You're right. It's one of those things that everyone kind of knows about but never talks about. Like the right. defence procurement. Yes. We know it's a disaster, mm -hmm. but nobody ever seems to fix it. Right, yeah. exactly. Well, it's unsexy, isn't it? 
Let me quote the union, which is I'm sat here in one of our most illustrious and greatest and most influential think tanks. That's uh, what you really think. <laughs> it's up to know still these sort of friends with punishing pieces. It's not as interesting a subject, is it? I mean, quite frankly, mm. to go through the sort of minutiae of government procurement is never going to be as interesting as saying we must abolish the Tyler Country Planning Act. You know, we must get rid of the NHS and replace it with a system that actually works and isn't killing vast numbers of people unnecessarily every year. You know, it's never going to be as attractive for ministers on policy one. And the problem is, is that we probably do need somebody to go away and devote a few years of their life to producing a magnum opus on how desiccated civil service has got to the stage where it's just funneling our money after pointless project after pointless projects in a way that nobody seems to have a handle. Because otherwise, we're never actually going to be able to decrease government spending. And as this trust is brief time and numbers improved, if we can't increase government spending, we can't cut taxes. And so your tax burden will inexorably rise and all of us will sort of sit here sort of moaning about it. Joe, I mean, we've talked about full expensing. Do we have any labour policies that we like? Well, well, full expensing would be my policy. Yeah. Well, there's good labour rhetoric. West Streeting has sort of made some vaguely positive noises about small reforms to healthcare. And it's often been said that noticeable and significant healthcare reform could only ever be enacted under a Labour government because they are not subject to this conspiracy theory that they're constantly out to try and privatise and flog off vast waves of healthcare to the Yanks or whomever. So, look, I mean, that's very exciting. I mean, they're pledged to build one and a half million new towns. Yes, 15 or 16 new towns as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think new towns is also the crucial thing because if you look at the record of Harold Macmillan, who was famously sort of charged for Churchill, I think, building, what, 300,000 homes a year, and actually managed to do it, one of the major ways that he had of subverting the Town of Country Planning Act was via new towns, mm-hmm. which were basically sort of separate to the various sort of huge impediments the Town of Country Planning Act mm-hmm. puts on building in this country. So, Keith Starmer supermarket. <laughs> exactly. So, yes, so if you know, Starmer could be the heir to Macmillan in that sense, that would be incredibly impressive. Is he actually going to be? Who knows? I think the disappointing thing about Labour is that, like, as you were saying about the rhetoric about reform and about, you know, taking on the kind of the shibboleths of the NHS or whatever it is. But when you yeah. dig down into what they actually mean by that, where Streeting talks about having a sort of app that will reward you for doing your 10,000 steps a day, it's yeah. pathetic. Yeah, and it's also a dystopian and social credit Yeah, it's yeah, just giving you NHS still, points. You, you've raised upon something new. I mean, Will and I have just spoken about two things sort of stopped happening. I mean, in regards to the fact we may dislike a policy, to the electorate, coming up with a new idea, even if it's not a good one, is far more alluring. I mean, yeah. there's something seriously worrying when a sitting government who's been there for 13 years yeah. that has like, a stonking great majority could only think of undoing problems in the past. Yeah. And I know that may- maybe that's, you know, undoing all the good stuff I've just said about the favourite policy of the year, but it's true. It's worrying that we're having to turn to a party that is currently not in government. Mm. It's also, sorry, it's slightly depressing from the Labour perspective that they're still so worried that their lead is soft, even as it's, what, sort of 20 or more points in the polls, that they're actually unwilling to be bold. In a sense, there is a case for a radical Labour government, one that will deal with all these things that the Tories have basically put off and do, but, you know, building houses, reforming the NHS, taking basically an axe to entitlements like the triple lock that the Tories can never do. But the fact that Labour is so sort of, they're like a rabbit in the headlights, you know, it's like, oh, you know, oh I think actually Rishi Sunak might pull it back. <laughs> Rather than actually saying when you're 20 points ahead in the polls, perhaps that's the opportunity to have a radical manifesto and then actually go and be elected and in government try and deal with these problems that Tories have mm-hmm. ditched. You know, I know Theresa May in 2017 is perhaps the example that that, yeah, yeah. You know, you don't interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake, I think is the Labour strategy. But I mean, I was talking about undoing things. Isn't that what great reforming governments always do? I mean, I think Thatcher talked about undoing the post-war consensus. Attlee obviously 
well, I suppose he didn't undo, he kind of created yeah. that created the welfare yeah. state, That's... which then the Thatcher government... Oh, no, Alice, you can't say Ali created the welfare state. You know, Lloyd George yes. or Stanley Baldwin. Yes, the, the, the national experience. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know, I suppose undoing things is in itself a worthwhile... Well, everything's so terrible. Yeah. I was trying to think of things that I'm optimistic about. Yeah. And when I think about like, the future of what the party could be, it would be a reforming government but it would be a radical reforming government. Mm. And, and the first thing it would have to do, really any Conservative Party that comes in in the future and that's serious about governing and serious about fixing Britain's fundamental problems would have to be incredibly brutal in a way that it uprooted things. It could not be a repeat of 2019. You have this incredible majority in East Quadra. Now, I understand that there are external problems that you have the COVID pandemic, you know, and then you have all of the mess that comes along with that. It is not good enough to point to something and say, well, you know, these people are stopping me. Ergo, I can't do anything about it. It is part of your job to know how to deal and work within these systems. And if you do not have the stomach to do what is necessary, and whatever that may mean, maybe that means uprooting the blog, maybe that means attacking the civil service, maybe that means being subtle and working within systems that you may despise, well, then you have to do it. You have to have the appetite to do that. And I think that when the Labour Party does get into power, a lot of people talk about it as if they're just going to walk around, you know, shooting themselves in the foot some time. But no, of course they're not going to do that. They've been out of power for such a long time. So I would say to any politicians listening who do want to write op-eds, please do uh, write them. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah obviously, sure, yeah. Uh, this is a common editor. No, keep, keep on fighting. Yeah. <laughs> Conservative is also happy to take anything from Instagram while they've been unable to deliver anything in the last 30 yeah. years. Yeah. So, yeah, the next question was uh, reasons for optimism. I can think of something to celebrate, which is that the next year we have the 2024 American oh, presidential gosh. election. Yes. <laughs> Not only because America's elections tend to be much more exciting than ours, because if the polls are correct, we're going to have the return of Donald Trump, following in the footsteps of Grover Cleveland to have two non-consecutive terms. But I think whether or not Trump and the army, apparently, of about 100 or so sort of 25-year-olds that he's assembled to actually sort of staff his government and introduce his agenda, whether he will actually finally be able to build that wall to take back America from the deep state, he will just be much, much more entertaining than sleepy Joe Biden. You know, I think we've all seen the videos of Biden making a speech and then sort of looking around and then sort of wandering off the stage. Mm. There's no way somebody of that age should be the leader of the free world. Whereas Trump, you know, for all his various moral flaws, is at least perhaps the funniest man who became sort of president of the United States. I mean, I remember there's that, that great video of you putting, what's it, the candy bar on the, the minion's head during the sort of, <laughs> like, the sort of White House Halloween sort of trick-or-treating thing and just watching it wander off. Or telling that kid, was it, was it a seven-year-old sort of phoned him up at the White House at Christmas? <laughs> telling him um, Santa yeah. wasn't real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he sort of, you know, oh, so do you still believe in Santa? Well, you're seven, so at that age it's marginal, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Sleepy Jay would never do something like that. Yeah, he was vital. Like, he was vital. Also, like, the lesson of the election is, well, funny enough, you look purely on the basis of metrics, Jay Biden's government has been remarkably successful. He's actually done a lot of the stuff that he said he would do, even if he has managed to get the message out in quite a garbled way. He has been, on paper, a successful president. Trump, on paper, was a chaotic president, although I think his foreign policy was pretty good, but you know, let's not get into the minutiae here. I think there's a lesson to be learned from the right here, which is they thought they could replace Trump as a demagogue with someone like DeSantis, who's the policy wonk, he has kind of intellectual market movement coming up behind him. They're looking for some kind of alternative. He crashes and burns. You know, his campaign is a disaster. It's limping along. People who wanted to stop Trump are now moving towards Nikki Haley. You can't remove yourself from that beating heart of populism. Populism is not dead, still very much alive. 
I am very much excited for Trump, probably for slightly separate reasons than William. Although I do think it would be very funny and I would like to watch the kind of compilation videos of people crying on election night. I think we should give him a chance. I really do. I think purely from a nationalist perspective, a Trump government would be much more favourable for Britain than a Biden administration has shown itself to be. So, you know, if Trump does win again, I think we should all be somewhat excited. Mm. Although, well, you know, it depends where you are in the world. <laughs> but also, too, as you know, populist, Trump has always been very pro-Britain. He's always been very pro-Brexit. You know, he's very much enjoyed coming to visit the UK and has talked to the prospects of the US and Trader. But if we are talking about the situation of a possible style of government next year, whenever an election comes, you're going to have a style of government at the same time as potentially a Trump administration. And that one must be the most hilarious odd couple you know, the, the sort of special yes. relationship has ever produced. Those two will never get along over any single thing. You know, if one sees sort of politics as entertainment with the occasional bit of legislation thrown in, 2024 is going to be a much more entertaining and personality-filled year than perhaps 2023 mm. has been. Yeah, I was just remembering when Trump held Theresa May's hand. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Going over a yeah, yeah, yeah. Scared so, yeah. of slopes. Yeah, the exhibition of all of um, you know, two wars going on. I'm not sure you want someone as chaotic as that in the most powerful office in the world. Joe, have you got any more? Um... Well, Poppy men- mentioned him earlier. I think my reason for cheer is Javier Mille in Argentina. And I think if history is taught us anything, it's that uh, you might want to be a little hesitant before backing the South American right entirely. <laughs> but, it's for the first time. <laughs> but that, that being said, that being said, and as you rightly pointed out, our economic woes are nowhere near as sort of dire as Argentina's. But I think there is something quite heartening that there are people out there who are willing to embrace very bold ideas to try and elevate themselves out of a slump and to kind of throw their lot in with a maverick, but at least a maverick with a very coherent programme of policies and quite a radical one. And I think that's something to be celebrated mm-hmm. and perhaps something to be ever so cautiously emulated. No, I agree. Where is the energy on the right now? Mm. It's not coming from the kind of more traditionalist, softer elements of the right-wing party, which I think is discredited itself. It's certainly discredited itself across Europe. i say it discredited itself in America. Where the energy is coming from is from this slightly more radical, and that doesn't have to be populist. I mean, just bolder, willing to see institutional problems and not refer to institutions and to say that actually in order to be a conservative, sometimes you actually do have to tear up ground. Sometimes you do have to be quite progressive, ironically. That is where the energy in the right, I think, is going to come from the next 10 years, because the problems that we are facing in the Western world, they are so endemic. It is not just enough to point towards some imagined past you actually do have to have a bit of fresh thinking coming through. Mm. So that comes through in people like Trump, that comes through in people like Malay. Where it's going to come in Britain, I don't know. I can't point to one person and say they're going to do that. What I would say is the people who I speak to who make the most optimistic about the right in this country are quite young. And that's quite contrary to the narrative of young people turning away from right-wing yeah. politics. I know a lot of very young right-wingers who are very serious thinkers very deeply engaged in the issues the country's dealing with, very passionate about change. I think we're coming up to the 50th anniversary of the Centre for Policies, aren't we? Yes. Um, and, and the 10th anniversary of CapEx. The energy on the rise is amongst the radical. But the Centre for Policy Studies and the lessons of the 1970s are still viable for today mm-hmm. in teaching us how a government can actually come to power and actually implement it today. The vast majority of politicians haven't read John Hoskins' Just in Time, which is the actual only book really you need to read to understand politics, understand how you can actually plan for government to implement something. Stepping Stones, Keith Joseph, Margaret Thatcher, you know, the efforts of the Centre for Policy Studies and actually 
creating the sort of intellectual parliament in the, in the mid-70s that meant after four years of hard work planning, the Thatcher government could hit the ground running. That's the sort of stuff that needs to be done. And it's very good to be sitting the end of the year, as we say, at the Centre for Policy Studies and with CapEx. You are going to be at the forefront of whatever sort of intellectual sort of revolution the Conservative Party is going to see, whether that's driven between young sort of tyros like Joseph Poppy and myself, or the mature elder stateswomen uh, politics. <laughs> like, uh, like, <laughs> you're on the thinnest sheet of ice. <laughs> I mean, if you hadn't just been so complimentary about the Centre for Policy Studies, a glass of wine is exposed on the tweed jacket. Yeah, so I'm so no, very angry at this point. We'll hit me with a drag to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, yeah. Underneath Michael Gove's house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I can I've put it better myself. My reason to be cheerful is of course, 50th anniversary of the Central Policy Studies and the 10th anniversary of CapEx and 50 more years of radical new progressive thought on the right and in the pages of CapEx. So cheers to everybody. Thank you so much yeah, for joining yeah, yeah. me. Pleasure. And Merry Christmas. And I hope you enjoyed listening at home. And please do subscribe, leave us a review and keep listening in the new year. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.